My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Different churches are known for different things. For instance, Catholics are known for their high church worship services, for their beautifully colored vestments, the, the, the robes that the clergy will wear, and they're also no, known for boring people to tears every chance they get. Baptists are known for their anger, for their sweaty and gesticulating clergy, and for scaring the socks off of people who come to church. But we Methodists, we are known for our excessive blandness for our ever-present fear of giving offense, and for being a safe space for ex-Catholics and ex-Baptists. <laughs> These, of course, are stereotypes. They're stereotypes. And what do we do with stereotypes? Stereotypes convey something that might be a little true, but we're certainly not supposed to say them the way that I just said them. Now, we can apply those kind of stereotypes to all sorts of different things, all sorts of different groups. We can apply them to fans of particular sport teams, to alumni from specific educational institutions, to hometown allegiances, on and on and on. And I think it gives us a sense of superiority, knowing how bad we might be, at least we're not as bad as those people over there. Now, we haven't gotten it all figured out in the Methodist Church, but at least we're not like the Baptists and the Catholics, that kind of thing. The only problem with that kind of mentality is that Jesus has a story for that. He has a parable for that. It's called the publican and the Pharisee. The publican is a, a tax collector. He's a no good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. He comes to church. The Pharisee is a, a do-gooding religious type. He tithes. He does all the things he's supposed to. They come and they pray at the altar. The tax collector, the bad guy, says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee, the good religious person, says, Well, God, I'm, I'm just so glad you made me just as I am, and I'm just glad I'm not like that guy over there. Jesus tells a story, and he says, Truly, I tell you, only one of the men leaves justified, and it's the tax collector. I told the story on Ash Wednesday because Jesus tells the story as a reminder that these two men are no different. The only difference between them is that one of them can admit he's a sinner, while the other one cannot. And the same holds true for us, I think, particularly in the church, like I did with those denominational stereotypes a second ago, because there are absolutely people who have experienced Methodists who are boring and Methodists who are terrifying, just as much as they have Catholics and Baptists. People might think that Methodists are mild-mannered, that we have a particular penchant for casseroles and hymn sings, but the truth of the matter is that Methodists, we are just as angry as everybody else. We might be just a little better at hiding it, though. We're all angry. We all get angry. There's no way around it. There is someone or something that will set us off. And when we get angry, we tend to rationalize it by saying, well, I lost it. I lost it. The it in I lost it implies our perception that we've got it all put together. That, that is, in anger, we lose something of our humanity. We believe that to be our best means to be calm and collected and mild-mannered. And so in the church, we do everything we can to appeal to as many people as we can, and so we never, ever, ever want to appear angry, especially in the Methodist church. And so rather than ever saying what needs to be said, we will brush it under the rug. 
Rather than encroaching on a dangerous and difficult subject, we'll delight in conversations instead about, well, isn't the weather nice today? Rather than upsetting the status quo, we are very content to let things remain just as they are. But when it comes to the Bible, and the Gospels in particular, anger is all over the place. Consider our dear Lord Jesus riding on the back of a donkey, entering the holy city of Jerusalem. See palm branches billowing in the breeze. Children are singing their hosannas. And there's Jesus. He's smiling and waving like the queen, entering into Jerusalem. That's how I think we imagine it sometimes. But that image of Jesus stands in stark contrast with what Jesus does as soon as he gets there. Because rather than shaking hands with the movers and the shakers, Instead of taking a few photographs that will make the front page of the Jerusalem Times, Jesus marches straight into worship. He's got a whip in his hand, and he violently drives out all the moneylenders from the temple. Jesus has a temple tantrum. It's not one of his finer moments. Or is it? I mean, I think there's this temptation to believe in the version of Jesus that we believe we believe, that sweet, quiet, lovely, flowing-haired Jesus that we've got in paintings all over the church. But Jesus' first act of Holy Week is filled with anger and with wrath. The very first thing he does on his last week is clean up the church before he goes to die. In his temple tantrum, we see righteous anger personified. And to make it worse, it's not even just that Jesus gets angry, it's who Jesus gets angry with. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, he denounces the, the powerful, the elite, the wealthy. He calls them to task for not taking care of the last, the least, the lost, the little, the dead. But when Jesus gets angry, angry enough to flip a table or two, it's over the good religious people who are only doing what they've been told to do. Every religious scholar believes that this is the moment that the target becomes square on Jesus' back. It's when the cross squarely shows on the horizon. The powers and principalities of the world, they can take a lot, but not when someone walks through their door, calls them to task, and gets angry. And this isn't the only time anger lingers near Jesus. This is at the end of the gospel. At the beginning of the gospel, the first sermon he ever offers, delivered to his hometown crowd, it ends... And anger. The people who raised him in the faith that he is sharing, they drive him to the edge of the village. They're so angry with him, they try to kill him. Anger is everywhere in the Bible. Anger is everywhere in our lives. I mean, we're in church on Sunday. I think we can all admit that we know we're at our worst when we're angry. We say and do things we would never otherwise say or do. And yet the proclamation of the Bible is that we are made in the image of God. That is, we have passions. We, we are made to care deeply, to notice what happens in the world. We're not automatons devoid of emotion. Sometimes we might imagine God being emotionless somehow, distant, far away, watching us from afar, content to just show up every once in a while with a little bit of good advice when we need it. But if you spend just even a few minutes in the Bible, you find the God who breaks rules who flips tables, who gets furious with us for making such a mess of things. Which is why I think anger is the most paradoxical of, every, of all the sins. These terrible, terrible, terrible things come from our anger, but anger can also bring great good into the world. 
Anger is a natural and even necessary response in the face of injustice. Anger, so constituted, is the acknowledgement that this world is not as it is meant to be, that this is not the world as God intended. And so when we see injustice, when we are filled with that kind of anger, we can bring it to church. In a place like this, we can lift up our clenched fists in the sky and we can demand to know why. We can do this because we worship the Lord who is good enough and great enough to take our anger, to receive even our rawest emotions, and to make something holy out of them. Just read the Psalms sometime. They are filled with anger. Anger at the world, anger at God. Anger can be, perhaps even should be expressed, but when it comes to acting on our anger, it's not altogether clear that we can be trusted. We can feel our anger, but acting on our anger, that's another thing entirely. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not ours. Which is all to say we can be angry, but what we do with that anger is complicated. Martin Luther, the great Protestant church reformer, loved being angry. He loved to be angry. He wrote, I never work better than when I'm inspired by my anger. Because when I'm angry, I can write and pray, I can preach well, for then my whole temperament is quickened, my understanding is sharpened, and all mundane vexations and temptations depart. I am better when I'm angry. Do you know that feeling? I know that I do. I'll confess that there have been many Sundays more than I'd care to admit that I've entered into the pulpit not with joy, 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 joy down in my heart, but with anger, something close to rage. I'm angry today. I'm angry that every single time I look at the news, I see what's happening in places like Ukraine and the Middle East. I'm angry that if you're someone who is part of the LGBTQ plus community, you don't know if you can be safe in our country. That angers me beyond measure. I'm furious about that. I can't believe that we still pay women less than we pay men for the same job. I mean, that's just bonkers crazy. It makes me so angry. But today, you know what makes me the most angry? It's the fact that Roanoke City Schools had to close for two days this week because of threats of violence, because of anger. I'm angry that we have kids who live in the neighborhood around this church who don't know where their next meal is going to come from, except they know they're going to get fed at school. But two days this week, they didn't get to eat because they couldn't go to school. I'm furious. I'm so mad that we have now told teachers, not only are you responsible for educating all of our children, but you have to keep them safe. I got a robocall from the city this week. Our number one priority in Roanoke City Schools is the safety of our children. You know what? That's great. Fine. Wonderful. You know what the number one priority should be? Education. But it's not anymore because we have to be afraid to send our kids to school. How is that normal? And we've just placed this squarely on the laps of teachers. We've said, hey, you know, I know your job's hard. Let's just make it 15 times harder. And what makes me most angry is that we're not doing anything about it. Not a thing. (laughs) 
More than a year ago, Eric Anderson and I took 19 chairs, little, little kid chairs. We put them on the front lawn of the church because that week, 19 kids were shot and killed in school in Uvalde, Texas. And things aren't getting any better. So my deepest anger, my deepest, truest anger is at our apathy. And yet I know that my anger, my anger, not your, my anger, when it's stoked and poked and prodded, it can produce the very thing that it's aimed against. I know that anger only ever begets more anger just as violence begets violence. My own anger, if left unchecked, can make things far worse before it makes things better. That's because anger tends to isolate us. It produces self-righteousness rather than righteousness. Luther again, he said that sin is the heart curved in on itself. Anger manifests myopic machinations. It has this way of getting inside of us and it tells us the only thing that matters is me, 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 and then it never goes anywhere. And so anger is this paradox. It can be the engine that drives us to do our best, to look at the world of injustice and say, no more, and at the same time, Anger can lead us to do our very worst. So what do we do with it? Part of the witness of the church is to say that when it comes to anger, we need to confess it. That is, we need to hand it over to God. Otherwise, we run the risk of deluding ourselves into thinking that something like violence can make the world a better place. Violence only ever makes things worse. Peace is a greater reality than violence, but peace is so much more difficult to do. Jesus starts Holy Week on a donkey and with a temple tantrum. It's a week that begins in anger, but it ends with the cross. The cross is a mirror of who we are. It reminds us of what we did when God came to dwell among us, that we shouted, crucify. And at the same time, it's also the declaration of the lengths to which God is and was willing to go to save us. So the cross is a mirror, and it's also a lens. It lets us see ourselves as we truly are, prideful and envious and angry, but it also teaches us who God is. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That proves God's love toward us. Jesus gets good and angry with us for making a mockery of this thing called life, but Jesus is also the one who has grace for people who are in disgrace. In other words, the forgiveness that's offered to us from the cross, it gives us the space to wonder about our own anger and what we're doing with it. We can't just make anger go away. We can't make it go away any more than we can stop the sun from rising, but we can pray. We can pray to the only one for whom nothing is impossible. We can pray to God to help us with our anger, to help us know the difference between anger that's born out of injustice and anger that develops into self-righteousness. God can always do more than we can. That's why we pray in the first place, because we need help. We need all the help we can get. We need help with the world. We need help with this community. We need help in our lives. We need help with our anger. 
And so contrary to the witness of someone like John Mayer, we don't have to wait on the world to change. We can pray for it. But don't be surprised if praying for the world to change, God starts the work by changing you. By changing you. Let peace begin with me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.